0: CHAPTER 41 OF THE D'Artagnan ROMANCES VOLUME 3 PART 1 BY ALEXANDRE DUMAS TRANSLATED BY WILLIAM ROBSON THIS LibriVox RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN THE RECITAL The maliciousness of the cardinal did not leave much for the ambassador to say. Nevertheless, the word restoration had struck the king, who, addressing the comte upon whom his eyes had been fixed since his entrance, Monsieur, said he, will you have the kindness to give us some details concerning the affairs of england you come from that country you are a frenchman and the orders which i see glittering upon your person announce you to be a man of merit as well as a man of quality monsieur said the cardinal turning toward the queen mother is an ancient servant of your majesty's monsieur le comte de la fere anne of austria was as oblivious as a queen whose life had been mingled with fine and stormy days she looked at mazarin whose evil smile promised her something disagreeable then she solicited from athos by another look an explanation monsieur continued the cardinal was a treville musketeer in the service of the late king monsieur is well acquainted with england whither he has made several voyages at various periods he is a subject of the highest merit these words made allusion to all the memories which anne of austria trembled to evoke england that was her hatred of richelieu and her love for buckingham a treville musketeer that was the whole odyssey of the triumphs which had made the heart of the young woman throb And of the dangers which had been so near overturning the throne of the young queen these words had much power for they rendered mute and attentive all the royal personages who with very various sentiments set about recomposing at the same time the mysteries which the young had not seen and which the old had believed to be forever effaced speak monsieur said louis the fourteenth the first to escape from troubles, suspicions, and remembrances. "'Yes, speak,' added Mazarin, to whom the little malicious thrust directed against Anne of Austria had restored energy and gaiety. "'Sire,' said the Comte, "'a sort of miracle has changed the whole destiny of Charles II. That which men, till that time, had been unable to do, God resolved to accomplish.' Mazarin coughed, while tossing about in his bed. King Charles II, continued Athos, left the Hague neither as a fugitive nor a conqueror, but as an absolute king, who, after a distant voyage from his kingdom, returns amidst universal benedictions. A great miracle, indeed, said Mazarin, for if the news was true king charles the second who has just returned amidst the benedictions went away amidst the musket shots the king remained impassable philip younger and more frivolous could not repress a smile which flattered mazarin as an applause of his pleasantry it is plain said the king there is a miracle but god who does so much for kings monsieur le comte nevertheless employs the hand of man to bring about the triumph of his designs to what men does charles Second principally owe his reestablishment why interrupted mazarin without any regard for the king's pride does not your majesty know that it is to monsieur monk i ought to know it replied louis the fourteenth resolutely And yet I ask my lord ambassador the causes of the change in this General Monk. And your majesty touches precisely the question, replied Athos, for without the miracle of which I have had the honor to speak, General Monk would probably have remained an implacable enemy of Charles II. God willed that a strange, bold, and ingenious idea should enter into the mind of a certain man, whilst... A devoted and courageous idea took possession of the mind of another man. The combination of these two ideas brought about such a change in the position of Monsieur Monk that from an inveterate enemy he became a friend to the deposed king. "'These are exactly the details I asked for,' said the king. "'Who and what are the two men of whom you speak?' Two Frenchmen, sire.' "'Indeed!' I am glad of that and the two ideas said mazarin i am more curious about ideas than about men for my part yes murmured the king the second idea the devoted reasonable idea the least important sir was to go and dig up a million in gold buried by king charles the first at newcastle and to purchase with that gold the adherents of monk Oh, oh, oh! said Mazarin, reanimated by the word million, but Newcastle was at that time occupied by Monk? Yes, monsieur le cardinal, and that is why I ventured to call the idea courageous as well as devoted. It was necessary, if Monk refused the offers of the negotiator, to reinstate King Charles the second. in possession of this million, which was to be torn, as it were, from the loyalty and not the royalism of General Monk. This was effected in spite of many difficulties. The general proved to be loyal, and allowed the money to be taken away. "'It seems to me,' said the timid, thoughtful king, "'that Charles II could not have known of this million whilst he was in Paris.' "'It seems to me,' rejoined the cardinal maliciously, that his majesty the king of great britain knew perfectly well of this million but that he preferred having two millions to having one sire said athos firmly the king of england whilst in france was so poor that he had not even money to take the post so destitute of hope that he had frequently thought of dying he was so entirely ignorant of the existence of the million at newcastle that but for a gentleman one of your majesty's subjects the moral depositary of the million who revealed the secret to king charles the second that prince would still be vegetating in the most cruel forgetfulness let us pass on to the strange bold and ingenious idea interrupted mazarin whose sagacity foresaw a check what was that idea this monsieur monk formed the only obstacle to the re-establishment of the fallen king. A Frenchman imagined the idea of suppressing this obstacle. ho! Oh, oh, oh. but he is a scoundrel, that Frenchman,' said Mazarin, "'and the idea is not so ingenious as to prevent its author being tied up by the neck at the Place de Greve by decree of the Parliament.' "'Your eminence is mistaken.' replied Athos dryly, I did not say that the Frenchman in question had resolved to assassinate Monsieur Monk, but only to suppress him. The words in the French language have a value which the gentlemen of France know perfectly. Besides, this is an affair of war, and when men serve kings against their enemies they are not to be condemned by a parliament. God is their judge. This French gentleman, then, formed the idea of gaining possession of the person of Monk, and he executed his plan. The king became animated at the recital of great actions. The king's younger brother struck the table with his hand, exclaiming, Ha! That is fine He carried off Monk, said the King. Why, Monk was in his camp. And the gentleman was alone, sire. That is marvelous, said Philip, marvelous indeed cried the king good there are the two little lions unchained murmured the cardinal and with an air of spite which he did not dissemble i am unacquainted with these details will you guarantee their authenticity monsieur all the more easily my lord cardinal from having seen the events you have yes monseigneur the king had unvoluntarily drawn close to the count the duc d'anjou had turned sharply round and pressed athos on the other side what next monsieur what next cried they both at the same time sire monsieur monk being taken by the frenchman was brought to the king charles ii at the hague the king gave back his freedom to monk and the grateful general in return gave charles ii the throne of great britain for which so many valiant men had fought in vain. Philip clapped his hands with enthusiasm. Louis the Fourteenth, more reflective, turned toward the Comte de La Fere. Is this true? said he, in all its details. Absolutely true, sire. That one of my gentlemen knew the secret of the million, and kept it. Yes, sire. The name of that gentleman? It was your humble servant, said Athos, simply and bowing. A murmur of admiration made the heart of Athos swell with pleasure. He had reason to be proud, at least. Mazarin himself had raised his arms toward heaven. Monsieur, said the king, I shall seek and find means to reward you. Athos made a movement. Oh! not for your honesty, to be paid for that would humiliate you, but I owe you a reward for having participated in the restoration of my brother, King Charles the Second. Certainly, said Mazarin, It is the triumph of a good cause which fills the whole house of France with joy, said Anne of Austria, I continue, said Louis the fourteenth is it also true that a single man penetrated to monk in his camp and carried him off that man had ten auxiliaries taken from a very inferior rank and nothing but them nothing more and he is named monsieur d'artagnan formerly lieutenant of the musketeers of your majesty and of austria colored mazarin became yellow with shame louis the fourteenth was deeply thoughtful and a drop of moisture fell from his pale brow what men murmured he and involuntarily he darted a glance at the minister which would have terrified him if mazarin at the moment had not concealed his head under his pillow monsieur said the young duc d'anjou placing his hand delicate and white as that of a woman upon the arm of athos Tell that brave man, I beg you, that monsieur, brother of the king, will to-morrow drink his health before five hundred of the best gentlemen of France. And on finishing these words, the young man, perceiving that his enthusiasm had deranged one of his ruffles, set to work to put it to rights with the greatest care imaginable. "'Let us resume business, sire,' interrupted Mazarin, who never was enthusiastic and who wore no ruffles. "'Yes, monsieur.' replied louis the fourteenth pursue your communication monsieur le comte added he turning toward athos athos immediately began and offered in due form the hand of the princess henrietta stuart to the young prince the king's brother the conference lasted an hour after which the doors of the chamber were thrown open to the courtiers who resumed their places as if nothing had been kept from them in the occupations of that evening athos then found himself again with raoul and the father and son were able to clasp each other's hands. End of Chapter Forty One. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter Forty Two of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume Three, Part One, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In which Mazarin becomes prodigal. Whilst Mazarin was endeavoring to recover from the serious alarm he had just experienced, Athos and Raoul were exchanging a few words in a corner of the apartment. "'Well, here you are at Paris, then, Raoul,' said the Comte. "'Yes, monsieur, since the return of Monsieur le Prince.' "'I cannot converse freely with you here, because we are observed, but I shall return home presently, and shall expect you as soon as your duty permits.' Raoul bowed and, at that moment, M. le Prince came up to them. The prince had that clever and keen look which distinguishes birds of prey of the noble species. His physiognomy itself presented several distinct traits of this resemblance. It is known that in the Prince de Conde the aquiline nose rose out sharply and incisively from a brow slightly retreating, rather low than high, and, according to the railers of the court, a pitiless race even for genius. "'constituted rather an eagle's beak than a human nose "'in the air of the illustrious princes of the house of Conde. "'This penetrating look, "'this imperious expression of the whole countenance, "'generally disturbed those to whom the prince spoke, "'more than either majesty or regular beauty "'could have done in the conqueror of Rocroi. "'Besides this, the fire mounted so suddenly to his projecting eyes, "'that with the prince every sort of animation resembled passion.' Now, on account of his rank, everybody at the court respected Monsieur Le Prince, and many even, seeing only the man, carried their respect as far as terror. Louis de Condes then advanced toward the Comte de la Fere and Raoul, with the marked intention of being saluted by the one and of speaking to the other. No man bowed with more reserved grace than the Comte de la Fere. He disdained to put into a salutation all the shades which a courtier ordinarily borrows from the same color. The desire to please Athos knew his own personal value and bowed to the prince like a man, correcting by something unsympathetic and undefinable that which might have appeared offensive to the pride of the highest rank and the inflexibility of his attitude. The prince was about to speak to Raoul Athos forestalled him if Monsieur le Vicomte de Bragelonne said he were not one of the humble servants of your royal highness. "'I would beg him to pronounce my name before you, mon prince.' "'I have had the honor to address Monsieur Le Comte de la Fere," said Conde instantly. "'My protector,' added Raoul, blushing. "'One of the most honorable men in the kingdom,' continued the prince. "'One of the first gentlemen of France, and of whom I have heard so much "'that I have frequently desired to number him among my friends.' "'An honor of which I should be unworthy.' "'replied Athos, but for the respect and admiration "'I entertain for your Royal Highness.' "'Monsieur de Bragelonne," said the prince, "'is a good officer, and it is plainly seen "'that he has been to a good school. "'Ah, monsieur le Comte, in your time generals had soldiers.' "'That is true, my lord, but nowadays soldiers have generals.' "'This compliment, which savored so little of flattery, gave a thrill of joy to the man whom already Europe considered a hero, and who might be thought to be satiated with praise. "'I regret very much,' continued the prince, "'that you should have retired from the service, Monsieur le Comte, for it is more than probable that the king will soon have a war with Holland, or England, and opportunities for distinguishing himself would not be wanting for a man who, like you, knows Great Britain as well as you do France.' "'I believe I may say, Monseigneur, that I have acted wisely in retiring from this service,' said Athos, smiling. "'France and Great Britain will henceforward live like two sisters, if I can trust my presentiments.' "'Your presentiments?' "'Stop, Monseigneur. Listen to what is being said yonder at the table of my lord the cardinal.' "'Where are they playing?' "'Yes, my lord.' The cardinal had just raised himself on one elbow and made a sign to the king's brother, and went to him. "'My lord,' said the cardinal, pick up, if you please, all of those gold crowns.' And he pointed to the enormous pile of yellow and glittering pieces which the Comte de Guiche had raised by degrees before him by a surprising run of luck at play. "'For me?' cried the Duke d'Anjou. "'Those are fifty thousand crowns yes monseigneur they are yours do you give them to me i have been playing on your account monseigneur replied the cardinal getting weaker and weaker as if this effort to giving money had exhausted all his physical and moral faculties oh good heavens exclaimed philip wild with joy what a fortunate day and he himself making a rake of his fingers drew a part of the sum into his pockets which he filled and still full a third remained on the table chevalier said philip to his favorite the chevalier de lorraine come hither chevalier the favorite quickly obeyed pocket the rest said the young prince this singular scene was considered by the persons present only as a touching kind of family fete the cardinal assumed the airs of a father with the sons of france and the two young princes had grown up under his wing No one then imputed to pride, or even impertinence, as would be done nowadays, this liberality on the part of the first minister. The courtiers were satisfied with envying the prince. The king turned away his head. "'I have never had so much money before,' said the young prince, joyously, as he crossed the chamber with his favorite to go to his carriage. "'No, never! What a weight these crowns are!' but why has monsieur the cardinal given all this money at once asked monsieur le prince of the comte de la fere he must be very ill the dear cardinal yes my lord very ill without doubt he looks very ill as your royal highness may perceive but surely he will die of it a hundred and fifty thousand crowns oh it is incredible but comte tell me a reason for it patience monseigneur i beg of you here comes monsieur le duc d'anjou talking with the chevalier de lorraine i should not be surprised if they spared us the trouble of being indiscreet listen to them in fact the chevalier said to the prince in a low voice my lord it is not natural for monsieur mazarin to give you so much money take care you will let some of the pieces fall my lord "'What design has the cardinal upon you to make him so generous?' "'As I said,' whispered Athos in the prince's ear, "'that, perhaps, is the best reply to your question.' "'Tell me, my lord,' repeated the chevalier impatiently, as he was calculating, by weighing them in his pocket the quota of the sum which had fallen to his share by rebound. "'My dear chevalier, a wedding present!' "'How a wedding present!' "'Yes, I am going to be married,' replied the Duc d'Anjou, without perceiving at the moment he was passing the prince and Athos, who both bowed respectfully. The chevalier darted at the young duke a glance so strange and so malicious that the comte de La l'affaire quite started on beholding it. "'You? You to be married?' repeated he. "'Oh, that's impossible. You would not commit such a folly.' "'Bah! I don't do it myself.' "'I am made to do it,' replied the Duke d'Anjou. "'But come, quick, let us get rid of our money.' Thereupon he disappeared with his companion, laughing and talking, whilst all heads were bowed on his passage. "'Then,' whispered the prince to Athos, "'that is the secret.' "'It was not I that told you so, my lord.' "'He is to marry the sister of Charles II.' I believe so." The prince reflected for a moment, and his eye shot forth one of its not unfrequent flashes. "'Humph!' said he slowly, as if speaking to himself. "'Our swords are once more to be hung on the wall—' "'For a long time!' And he sighed. All that sigh contained, of ambition silently stifled, of extinguished illusions and disappointed hopes. Athos alone divined, for he alone had heard that sigh. Immediately after, the prince took leave and the king left the apartment. Athos, by a sign made to Bragelonne, renewed the desire he had expressed at the beginning of the scene. By degrees, the chamber was deserted, and Mazarin was left alone, a prey to suffering which he could no longer dissemble. Manouin, Manouin, cried he in a broken voice. "'What does Monseigneur want?' Gnaud, let Guenaud be sent for, said his eminence, I think I'm dying! Bernouin, in great terror, rushed into the cabinet to give the order, and the piqueur, who hastened to fetch the physician, passed the king's carriage in the Rue Saint-Honore. End of chapter forty two, recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. CHAPTER 43 OF THE D'Artagnan ROMANCES, VOLUME THREE, PART ONE, BY ALEXANDRE DUMAS, TRANSLATED BY WILLIAM ROBSON. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. GNAUD. The cardinal's order was pressing. Gnaud quickly obeyed it. He found his patient stretched on his bed, his legs swelled, his face livid, and his stomach collapsed. Mazarin had a severe attack of gout. He suffered tortures with the impatience of a man who has not been accustomed to resistances. On seeing Gennad... Ah! said he. Now I am saved! Gennad was a very learned and circumspect man, who stood in no need of the critiques of Boileau to obtain a reputation. When facing a disease, if it were personified in a king, he treated the patient as a Turk treats a Moor. He did not, therefore, reply to Mazarin as the minister expected, Here is the doctor, good-by-disease, on the contrary, on examining his patient with a very serious air. Oh, oh said he. Hey! What? Gnard, how you look at me! I look as I should on seeing your complaint, my lord. It is a very dangerous one. The gout! Oh, yes, the gout! With complications, my lord. Mazarin raised himself upon his elbow, and questioning by look and gesture, What do you mean by that? Am I worse than I believed myself to be? My lord, said Gennard, seating himself beside the bed, Your eminence has worked very hard during your life. Your eminence has suffered much. But— i am not old i fancy the late monsieur de richelieu was but 17 months younger than i am when he died and died of a mortal disease i am young in god remember i am scarcely 52 oh my lord you are much more than that how long did the frond last uh, for what purpose do you put such a question to me for medical calculation monseigneur well some ten years off and on very well be kind enough to reckon every year of the frond as three years that makes thirty now twenty and fifty-two makes seventy-two years you are seventy-two my lord and that is a great age Whilst saying this, he felt the pulse of his patient. This pulse was full of such fatal indications, that the physician continued notwithstanding the interruptions of the patient. "'Put down the years of the frond at four each, and you have lived eighty-two years.' "'Are you speaking seriously, genaud "'Alas! Yes, Monseigneur.' "'You take a roundabout way, then, to inform me that I am very ill?' "'Ma foi. Yes, my lord, and with a man of the mind and courage of your eminence, it ought not to be necessary to do.' The cardinal breathed with such difficulty that he inspired pity even in a pitiless physician. "'There are diseases, and diseases—' resumed mazarin from some of them people escape that is true my lord is it not cried mazarin almost joyously for in short what else would be the use of power of strength of will what would the use of genius be your genius "'What would be the use of science and art "'if the patient who disposes of all that "'cannot be saved from peril?' "'Gonard was about to open his mouth, "'but Mazarin continued. "'Remember,' said he, "'I am the most confiding of your patients. "'Remember, I obey you blindly, "'and that consequently.' "'I know all that,' said Gonard. I shall be cured then monseigneur there is neither strength of will nor power nor genius nor science that can resist a disease which god doubtless sends or which he casts upon the earth at the creation with full power to destroy and kill mankind when the disease is mortal it kills and nothing can is my disease mortal? asked Mazarin. Yes, my lord! His eminence sank down for a moment, like an unfortunate wretch who is crushed by a falling column, but the spirit of Mazarin was a strong one, or rather his mind was a firm one. Guenaud, said he, recovering from his first shock; you will permit me to appeal from your judgment, I will call together the most learned men of Europe, I will consult them, I will live, in short, by the virtue of I care not what remedy!" "My lord must not suppose," said Guenaud, "that I have the presumption to pronounce alone upon an existence so valuable as yours, I have already assembled all the good physicians and practitioners of France and Europe. There are twelve of them. And they said? They said that your eminence was suffering from a mortal disease. I have the consultation signed in my portfolio. If your eminence will please to see it, you will find the names of all the incurable diseases we have met with. There is, first... No, no, cried Mazarin, pushing away the paper. No, no, Gennad, I yield, I yield. And a profound silence, during which the cardinal resumed his senses and recovered his strength, succeeded to the agitation of the scene. There is another thing murmured Mazarine. There are empirics and charlatans in my country. Those whom physicians abandon run the chance of a quack who kills them ten times but saves them a hundred times. Has not your eminence observed that during the last month I have changed my remedies ten times? Yes. Well. Well, I have spent 50,000 crowns in purchasing the secrets of all these fellows. The list is exhausted, and so is my purse. You are not cured, and but for my art you would be dead. That ends it, murmured the cardinal. That ends it. And he threw a melancholy look upon the riches which surrounded him, "'And must I quit all of that?' sighed he. "'I am dying, Gnod. I am dying!' "'Oh, not yet, my lord,' said the physician. Mazarin seized his hand. "'In what time?' asked he, fixing his two large eyes upon the impassible countenance of the physician. "'My lord, we never tell that!' to ordinary men perhaps but not to me to me whose every minute is worth a treasure tell me ganade tell me no no my lord i insist upon it i tell you oh give me a month or and for every one of those thirty days i will pay you a hundred thousand crowns my lord replied ganade in a firm voice It is God who can give you days of grace, and not I. God only allows you a fortnight. The cardinal breathed a painful sigh, and sank back upon his pillow, murmuring, Thank you, Gennard, thank you. The physician was about to depart, the dying man raising himself up. Silence! said he with flaming eyes silence my lord i have known this secret two months you see that i have kept it faithfully go Gnod. i will take care of your fortunes go and tell prienne to send me a clerk called monsieur colbert go End of chapter forty three recording by john vanstan savannah georgia chapter 44 of the d'artagnan romances volume 3 part 1 by alexandre dumas translated by william robson this LIBRIVOX recording is in the public domain colbert colbert was not far off during the whole evening he had remained in one of the corridors chatting with banouin and brienne and commenting with the ordinary skill of people of a court upon the news which developed like air bubbles upon the water on the surface of each event it is doubtless time to trace, in a few words, one of the most interesting portraits of the age, and to trace it with as much truth, perhaps, as contemporary painters have been able to do-Colbert was a man in whom the historian and the moralist have an equal right-he was thirteen years older than Louis the fourteenth., his future master-of middle height, rather lean than otherwise-he had deep-set eyes, a mean appearance; his hair was coarse black and thin which say the biographers of his time made him take early to the skull cap a look of severity or harshness even a sort of stiffness which with inferiors was pride with superiors an affectation of superior virtue a surly cast of countenance upon all occasions even when looking at himself in a glass alone such is the exterior of this personage As to the moral part of his character, the depth of his talent for accounts, and his ingenuity in making sterility itself productive, were much boasted of. Colbert had formed the idea of forcing governors of frontier places to feed the garrisons without pay, with what they drew from contributions. Such a valuable quality made Mazarin think of replacing Joubert, his intendant, who had recently died, by Monsieur Colbert who had such skill in nibbling down allowances. Colbert, by degrees, crept into court, notwithstanding his lowly birth, for he was the son of a man who sold wine, as his father had done, but who afterwards sold cloth and then silk stuffs. Colbert, destined for trade, had been clerk in Lyon to a merchant, whom he had quitted to come to Paris in the office of the Châtelet procureur named de It was here he learned the art of drawing up an account, and the much more valuable one of complicating it. This stiffness of manner in Colbert had been of great service to him. It is so true that fortune, when she has a caprice, resembles those women of antiquity, who, when they had a fancy, were disgusted by no physical or moral defects in either men or things colbert placed with michel Letellier, secretary of state in sixteen forty eight by his cousin colbert seigneur de st penange who protected him received one day from the minister a commission for cardinal mazarin his eminence was then in the enjoyment of flourishing health and the bad years of the fronde had not yet counted triple and quadruple for him he was at sedan very much annoyed at a court intrigue in which anne of austria seemed inclined to desert his cause of this intrigue l'etelier held the thread he had just received a letter from anne of austria a letter very valuable to him and strongly compromising mazarin but as he had already played the double part which served him so well and by which he always managed two enemies so as to draw advantage from both either by embroiling them more and more or by reconciling them Michel Lettier wished to send Anne of Austria's letter to Mazarin in order that he might be acquainted with it and consequently pleased with his having so willingly rendered him a service. To send the letter was an easy matter; to recover it again after having communicated it—that was the difficulty. Letelier cast his eyes around him, and seeing the black and meagre clerk with the scowling brow scribbling away in his office. He preferred him to be the best gendarme for the execution of this design. Colbert was commanded to set out for Sedan, with positive orders to carry the letter to Mazarin and bring it back to Letellier. He listened to his orders with scrupulous attention, required the instructions to be repeated twice, and was particular in learning whether the bringing back was as necessary as the communicating. And Letellier replied sternly, More necessary! Then he set out, traveled like a courier, without any care for his body, and placed in the hands of Mazarin, first a letter from Letelier, which announced to the cardinal the sending of the precious letter, and then that letter itself. Mazarin, colored greatly whilst reading Anne of Austria's letter, gave Colbert a gracious smile and dismissed him. When shall I have the answer, monseigneur? Tomorrow to-morrow morning? Yes, monsieur. The clerk turned upon his heel, after making his very best bow. The next day he was at his post at seven o'clock. Mazarin made him wait till ten. He remained patiently in the antechamber. His turn having come, he entered. Mazarin gave him a sealed packet. On the envelope of this packet were these words, Monsieur Michel Letellier, etc. Colbert looked at the packet with much attention. The cardinal put on a pleasant countenance and pushed him toward the door. "'And the letter of the Queen Mother, my lord?' asked Colbert. "'It is with the rest, in the packet,' said Mazarin. "'Oh, very well,' replied Colbert, and placing his hat between his knees, he began to unseal the packet. Mazarin uttered a cry. "'What are you doing?' said he angrily. I am unsealing the packet, my lord.' "'You mistrust me, then? Master pedant, do you? Did any one ever see such impertinence?' "'Oh, my lord, do not be angry with me. It is certainly not your eminence's word I place in doubt. God forbid!' "'What, then?' "'It is the carefulness of your chancery, my lord. What is a letter?' "'A rag.' may not a rag be forgotten and look my lord look if i was not right your clerks have forgotten the rag the letter is not in the packet you are an insolent fellow and you have not looked cried mazarin very angrily begone and wait my pleasure while saying these words with perfectly italian subtlety he snatched the packet from the hands of colbert and re-entered his apartments but this anger could not last so long as not to be replaced in time by reason mazarin every morning on opening his closet door found the figure of colbert like a sentinel behind the bench and this disagreeable figure never failed to ask him humbly but with tenacity for the queen mother's letter mazarin could hold out no longer and was obliged to give it up he accompanied this restitution with a most severe reprimand during which Colbert contented himself with examining, feeling, even smelling, as it were, the paper, the characters, and the signature, neither more nor less than if he had to deal with the greatest forger in the kingdom. Mazarin behaved still more rudely to him, but Colbert, still impassable, having obtained a certainty that the letter was the true one, went off as if he had been deaf. This conduct obtained for him afterwards the post of Joubert, for mazarin instead of bearing malice admired him and was desirous of attaching so much fidelity to himself it may be judged by this single anecdote what the character of colbert was events developing themselves by degrees allowed all the powers of his mind to act freely colbert was not long in insinuating himself into the good graces of the cardinal he became even indispensable to him The clerk was acquainted with all his accounts, without the cardinals ever having spoken to him about them. This secret between them was a powerful tie, and this was why, when, about to appear before the master of another world, Mazarin was desirous of taking good counsel, in disposing of the wealth he was so unwillingly obliged to leave in this world. After the visit of Gnod, he therefore sent for Colbert, desired him to sit down, and said to him, let us converse monsieur colbert and seriously for i am very ill and i may chance to die man is mortal replied colbert i have always remembered that monsieur colbert and i have worked with that end in view you know that i have amassed a little wealth i know you have monseigneur at how much do you estimate, as near as you can, the amount of this wealth, Monsieur Colbert? At forty millions, five hundred and sixty thousand, two hundred livres, nine cents, eight farthings, replied Colbert. The cardinal heaved a deep sigh and looked at Colbert with wonder, but he allowed a smile to steal across his lips. Known money added Colbert, in reply to that smile. The cardinal gave quite a start in bed. "'What do you mean by that?' said he. "'I mean,' said Colbert, "'that besides those forty millions, five hundred and sixty thousand, two hundred livres, nine cents, eight farthings, there are thirteen millions that are not known.' "'Oof!' sighed Mazarin what a man at this moment the head of benouin appeared through the embrasure of the door what is it asked mazarin and why do you disturb me the Theatin father your eminence's director was sent for this evening and he cannot come again to my lord till after to-morrow mazarin looked at colbert who rose and took his hat saying I shall come again, my lord." Mazarin hesitated. "'No, no,' said he. "'I have as much business to transact with you as with him. Besides, you are my other confessor, and what I have to say to one the other may hear. Remain where you are, Colbert.' "'But, my lord, if there be no secret of penitence, will the director consent to my being here?' Do not trouble yourself about that. Come into the Roya. I can wait outside, Monseigneur. No, no. It will do you good to hear the confession of a rich man. Colbert bowed and went into the Roya. Introduce the theatin and Father, said Mazarin, closing the curtains. End of chapter 44 Recording by John Van Stan Savannah, Georgia Chapter 45 of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume 3, Part 1, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Confession of a Man of Wealth The Theatin entered deliberately, without being too much astonished at the noise and agitation which anxiety for the cardinal's health had raised in his household. "'Come in, my reverend father!' said Mazarin, after a last look at the roya. Come in and console me. That is my duty, my lord, replied the theatin. Begin by sitting down and making yourself comfortable, for I am going to begin with a general confession. You will afterwards give me a good absolution, and I shall believe myself more tranquil. My lord, said the father, You are not so ill as to make a general confession urgent, and it will be very fatiguing. Take care. You suspect, then, that it may be long, father? How can I think it otherwise, when a man has lived so completely as your eminence has done? Ah, that is true, yes. The recital may be long. The mercy of God is great snuffled the Theatin. stop said mazarin there i begin to terrify myself with having allowed so many things to pass which the lord might reprove is not that always so said the Theatin naively removing further from the lamp his thin pointed face like that of a mole sinners are so forgetful beforehand and scrupulous when it is too late replied mazarin do you use that word ironically and to reproach me with all the genealogies i have allowed to be made on my account i the son of a fisherman in fact translator's note this is quite untranslatable it being a play upon the words pisseur, a sinner and pisseur, a fisherman it is in very bad taste hum said the theatin that is the first scene father for I have allowed myself to be made to descend from two old Roman consuls, S. Giganius Masarinus the first, Mazarinus the second, and Proculus Masarinus the third, of whom the Chronicle of Hollander speaks, from Masarinus to Mazarin the proximity was tempting, Masarinus, a diminutive, means leanish, poorish, out of case, oh, reverend father! mazarini may now be carried to the augmentative meagre thin as lazarus look and he showed his fleshless arms in your having been born of a family of fishermen i see nothing injurious to you for saint peter was a fisherman and if you are a prince of the church my lord he was the supreme head of it pass on if you please so much the more for my having threatened with the Bastille a certain Bounet, a priest of Avignon, who wanted to publish a genealogy of the Casa Mazarini, much too marvelous, "'To be probable,' replied the Theotin. "'Oh, if I had acted up to his idea, father, that would have been the vice of pride. Another sin.' "'It was excessive wit.' and a person is not to be reproached with such sorts of abuses. Pass on, pass on. I was all pride. Look you, father. I will endeavor to divide that into capital sins. I like divisions when well made. I am glad of that. You must know that in 1630, alas, that is thirty-one years ago. You were then twenty-nine years old, Monseigneur a hot-headed age i was then something of a soldier and i threw myself at Cassel into the ambus to show that i rode on horseback as well as any officer it is true i restored peace between the french and the spaniards that redeems my scene a little i see no sin in being able to ride well on horseback said the theotin that is in perfect good taste and does honor to our gown as a christian i approve of your having prevented the effusion of blood as a monk i am proud of the bravery a monk has exhibited mazarin bowed his head humbly yes said he but the consequences what consequences Eh that damned scene of pride has roots without end from the time that i threw myself in that manner between two armies that i had smelt powder and faced lines of soldiers i have held generals a little in contempt ah said the father there is the evil so that i have not found one endurable since that time the fact is said the theatin that the generals we have had have not been remarkable oh cried mazarin there was monsieur le prince i have tormented him thoroughly he is not much to be pitied he has acquired sufficient glory and sufficient wealth that may be for monsieur le prince but- Monsieur Beaufort, for example, whom I held suffering so long in the dungeon of Vincennes. Ah, but he was a rebel, and the safety of the state required that you should make a sacrifice. Pass on. I believe I have quite exhausted pride. There is another sin which I am afraid to qualify. I can qualify it myself. Tell it a great sin reverend father we shall judge monseigneur you cannot fail to have heard of certain relations which i have had with her majesty the queen-mother the malevolent the malevolent my lord are fools was it not necessary for the good of the state and the interests of the young king that you should live in good intelligence with the queen pass on pass on i assure you said mazarin you remove a terrible weight from my breast these are all trifles look for something serious i have had much ambition father that is the march of great minds and things my lord even the longing for the tiara to be pope is to be the first of christians why should you not desire that it has been printed that to gain that object i had sold cambria to the spaniards you have perhaps yourself written pamphlets without severely persecuting pamphleteers then reverend father i have truly a clean breast i feel in nothing remaining but slighter peccadilloes what are they play that is rather worldly but you are obliged by the duties of greatness to keep a good house i like to win no player plays to lose i cheated a little you took your advantage pass on well reverend father i feel nothing else upon my conscience give me absolution and my soul will be able when god shall please to call it to mount without obstacle to the throne the thetan moved neither his arms nor his lips what are you waiting for father said mazarin i am waiting for the end the end of what of the confession monsieur but i have ended oh no your eminence is mistaken not that i know of search diligently i have searched as well as possible then i shall assist your memory do the thetan coughed several times you have said nothing of avarice another capital sin nor of those millions said he what millions father why those you possess my lord father that money is mine why should i speak to you about that because see you our opinions differ you say that money is yours whilst i i believe it is rather the property of others mazarin lifted his cold hand to his brow which was beaded with perspiration. How so? stammered he. This way, your excellency has gained much wealth, in the service of the king. Um, Much, that is, not too much. Whatever it may be, whence came that wealth? From the state. The state? That is the king. But what do you conclude from that father said mazarin who began to tremble i cannot conclude without seeing a list of the riches you possess let us reckon a little if you please you have the bishopric of metz yes the abbeys of saint clement saint Arnold, and saint vincent all at metz Yes you have the abbey of saint denis in france a magnificent property yes father you have the abbey of cluny which is rich i have that of saint medard at soissons with a revenue of one hundred thousand livres i cannot deny it that of saint victor at marseilles one of the best in the south yes, father!" "A good million a year, with the emoluments of the cardinalship and the ministry-I say too little when I say two millions a year." "Eh!" Hey. "In ten years that is twenty millions, and twenty millions put out at fifty per cent give, by progression, twenty-three millions in ten years!" "How well you reckon for a Theatin!" Since your eminence placed our order in the convent we occupy, near saint germain de Pre in 1641, I have kept the accounts of the society. And mine likewise apparently, father. One ought to know a little of everything, my lord. Very well. Conclude at present. I conclude that your baggage is too heavy to allow you to pass through the gates of paradise. "'Shall I be damned?' "'If you do not make restitution, yes.' Mazarin uttered a piteous cry. "'Restitution! But to whom, good God?' "'To the owner of that money. To the king.' "'But the king did not give it all to me?' "'One moment. Does not the king sign the ordinances?' Mazarin passed from signs to groans. Absolution, absolution, cried he. Impossible, my lord. Restitution, restitution, replied the theatin. But you absolve me from all other sins. Why not from that? Because, replied the father, to absolve you for that motive would be a sin for which the king would never absolve me, my lord! Thereupon the confessor quitted his penitent with an air full of compunction, he then went out in the same manner he had entered, "Oh, good God!" groaned the cardinal, "come here, Colbert, I am very, very ill indeed, my friend!" End of chapter forty five recording by John Vanstan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 46 of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume 3, Part 1, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Donation Colbert reappeared beneath the curtains. "'Have you heard?' said Mazarin. "'Alas, yes, my lord.' "'Can he be right? Can all of this money be badly acquired?' a theatin monseigneur is a bad judge in matters of finance replied colbert coolly and yet it is very possible that according to his theological ideas your eminence has been in a certain degree in the wrong people generally find they have been so when they die in the first place they commit the wrong of dying colbert that is true my lord against whom however did the Theatin make out that you had committed these wrongs against the king mazarin shrugged his shoulders as if i had not saved both his state and his finances that admits of no contradiction my lord does it then i have received a merely legitimate salary in spite of the opinion of my confessor that is beyond doubt and i might fairly keep for my own family which is so needy a good fortune the whole even if of which i have earned i see no impediment to that monseigneur i felt assured that in consulting you colbert i should have good advice replied mazarin greatly delighted colbert resumed his pedantic look my lord interrupted he i think it would be quite as well to examine whether that the theatin said is not a snare oh no a snare what for the theatin is an honest man he believed your eminence to be at death's door because your eminence consulted him did not i hear him say distinguish that which the king has given you from that which you have given yourself recollect my lord if he did not say something a little like that to you that is quite a theatrical speech that is possible in which case my lord i should consider you as required by the theatin to to make restitution cried mazarin with great warmth eh hey, i do not say no what of all you do not dream of such a thing you speak just as the confessor did to make restitution of a part that is to say his majesty's part and that monseigneur may have its dangers your eminence is too skilful a politician not to know that at this moment The king does not possess a hundred and fifty thousand livres, clear in his coffers. "'That is not my affair,' said Mazarin triumphantly. "'That belongs to Monsieur le Surintendant Fouquet, whose accounts I gave you to verify some months ago.' Colbert bit his lips at the name of Fouquet. "'His Majesty,' said he between his teeth, "'has no money but that which Monsieur Fouquet collects.' your money monseigneur would afford him a delicious banquet well but i am not the superintendent of his majesty's finances i have my purse surely i would do much for his majesty's welfare some legacy but i cannot disappoint my family the legacy of a part would dishonor you and offend the king leaving a part to his majesty is to avow that that part has inspired you with doubts as to the lawfulness of the means of acquisition monsieur gobert i thought your eminence did me the honor to ask my advice yes but you are ignorant of the principal details of the question i am ignorant of nothing my lord during ten years, all the columns of figures which are found in France have passed in review before me, and if I have painfully nailed them into my brain, they are there now so well riveted, that, from the office of Monsieur Letellier, who is sober, to the little secret largesses of Monsieur Fouquet, who is prodigal, I could recite, figure by figure, all the money that is spent in France from Marseilles to Cherbourg. Then, you would have me throw all the money into the coffers of the king cried mazarin ironically and from whom at the same time the gout forced painful moans surely the king would reproach me with nothing but he would laugh at me while squandering my millions and with good reason your eminence has misunderstood me I did not, the least in the world, pretend that his majesty ought to spend your money. "'You said so clearly, it seems to me, when you advised me to give it to him.' "'Ah?' replied Colbert. "'That is because your eminence, absorbed as you are by your disease, entirely loses sight of the character of Louis the Fourteenth. "'How so?' That character, if I may venture to express myself thus, resembles that which my lord confessed just now to the Theatin. Go on, that is. Pride. Pardon me, my lord. Haughtiness, nobleness. Kings have no pride. That is a human passion. Pride. Yes, you are right. Next. Well, my lord if i have divined rightly your eminence has but to give all your money to the king and that immediately but for what said mazarin quite bewildered because the king will not accept of the whole what and he a young man and devoured by ambition just so a young man who is anxious for my death.' "'My lord.' "'To inherit, yes, Colbert, yes, he is anxious for my death. In order to inherit, triple fool that I am, I would prevent him.' "'Exactly. If the donation were made in a certain form, he would refuse it.' "'Well, but how?' "'That is plain enough.' a young man who has yet done nothing who burns to distinguish himself who burns to reign alone will never take anything ready built he will construct it for himself this prince monseigneur will never be content with the palais royal which Monsieur de richelieu left him nor with the palais mazarin which you have had so superbly constructed nor with the louvre which his ancestors inhabited nor with saint germain where he was born all that does not proceed from him i predict he will disdain and you will guarantee that if i give my forty millions to the king saying certain things to him at the same time i guarantee he will refuse them but those things what are they i will write them if my lord will have the goodness to dictate them well but after all what advantage would that be to me an enormous one nobody will afterwards be able to accuse your eminence of that unjust avarice with which pamphleteers have reproached the most brilliant mind of the present age you are right Colbert you are right go and seek the king on my part and take him my will your donation my lord but if he should accept it if he should even think of accepting it then there would remain thirteen millions for your family and that is a good round sum But then you would be either a fool or a traitor and i am neither the one nor the other my lord you appear to be much afraid that the king will accept you have a deal more reason to fear that he will not accept but see you if he does not accept i should like to guarantee my thirteen reserved millions to him yes i will do so yes but my pains are returning i shall faint i am very ill very ill colbert i am very near my end colbert started the cardinal was indeed very ill large drops of sweat flowed down upon his bed of agony and the frightful pallor of a face streaming with water was a spectacle which the most hardened practitioner could not have beheld without compassion colbert was without doubt very much affected for he quitted the chamber calling bernouin to attend the dying man and went into the corridor there walking about with a meditative expression which almost gave nobility to his vulgar head his shoulders thrown up his neck stretched out his lips half open to give vent to unconnected fragments of incoherent thoughts he lashed up his courage to the pitch of the undertaking contemplated whilst within ten paces of him separated only by a wall his master was being stifled by anguish which drew from him lamentable cries thinking no more of the treasures of the earth or of the joys of paradise but much of all the horrors of hell whilst burning hot napkins physics revulsives and genaud who was recalled were performing their functions with increased activity Colbert. Holding his great head in both his hands, to compress within it the fever of the projects engendered by the brain, was meditating the tenor of the donation he would make Mazarin write. At the first hour of respite his disease should afford him. It would appear as if all the cries of the cardinal and all the attacks of death upon this representative of the past were stimulants for the genius of this thinker with the bushy eyebrows, who was turning already toward the rising sun of a regenerated society colbert resumed his place at mazarin's pillow at the first interval of pain and persuaded him to dictate a donation thus conceived about to appear before god the master of mankind i beg the king who was my master on earth to resume the wealth which his bounty has bestowed upon me and which my family would be happy to see pass into such illustrious hands. The particulars of my property will be found, they are drawn up, at the first requisition of his majesty or at the last sigh of his most devoted servant, Jules, Cardinal de Mazarin. The cardinal sighed heavily as he signed this. Colbert sealed the packet and carried it immediately to the Louvre, whither the king had returned, he then went back to his own home, rubbing his hands with the confidence of a workman who has done a good day's work. End of chapter forty six recording by john Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. CHAPTER forty seven of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume three, Part one by Alexander Dumas, translated by William Robson This LibriVox recording is in the public domain how Anne of Austria gave one piece of advice to Louis the fourteenth, and how Monsieur Fouquet gave him another. The news of the extreme illness of the cardinal had already spread and attracted at least as much attention among the people of the Louvre as the news of the marriage of Monsieur, the king's brother, which had already been announced as an official fact. Scarcely had Louis the fourteenth returned home with his thoughts fully occupied with the various things he had seen and heard in the course of the evening, when an usher announced that the same crowd of courtiers, who in the morning had thronged his levee presented themselves again at his couch, a remarkable piece of respect which, during the reign of the cardinal, the court, not very discreet in its preferences, had accorded to the minister, without caring about displeasing the king. But the minister had had, as we have said, an alarming attack of gout, and the tide of flattery was mounting towards the throne. Courtiers have a marvelous instinct in scenting the turn of events, courtiers possess a supreme kind of science, they are diplomatists in throwing light upon the unraveling of complicated intrigues, captains in divining the issue of battles, and physicians in curing the sick. Louis the fourteenth., to whom his mother had taught this axiom, together with many others, understood at once that the cardinal must be very ill. Scarcely had Anne of Austria conducted the young queen to her apartments and taken from her brow the headdress of ceremony when she went to see her son in his cabinet, where, alone, melancholy and depressed, he was indulging, as if to exercise his will in one of those terrible inward passions, king's passions, which create events when they break out, and with Louis the Fourteenth, thanks to his astonishing command over himself, became such benign tempests that his most violent, his only passion, that which St. Simon mentions with astonishment, was that famous fit of anger which he exhibited fifty years later, on the occasion of a little concealment of the Duke de Maines, and which had for result a shower of blows inflicted with a cane upon the back of a poor valet who had stolen a biscuit. The young king then was, as we have seen, a prey to a double excitement and he said to himself as he looked in a glass o king king by name and not in fact phantom vain phantom art thou inert statue which has no other power than that of provoking salutations from courtiers when wilt thou be able to raise thy velvet arm or clench thy silken hand when wilt thou be able to open for any purpose but to sigh or smile lips condemned to the motionless stupidity of the marbles in thy gallery then passing his hand over his brow and feeling the want of air he approached a window and looking down saw below some horsemen talking together and groups of timid observers these horsemen were a fraction of the watch the groups were busy portions of the people to whom a king is always a curious thing the same as a rhinoceros a crocodile or a serpent He struck his brow with his open hand, crying, "'King of France? What title? People of France! What a heap of creatures! I have just returned from my Louvre, my horses, just unharnessed, are still smoking, and I have created interest enough to induce scarcely twenty persons to look at me as I passed. Twenty! What do I say? No, there were not twenty anxious to see the King of France. There are not even ten archers to guard my palace of residence. Archers!' people, guards, all are at the Palais Royal. Why, my good God, have not I, the King, the right to ask of you all that? Because, said a voice replying to his, and which sounded from the other side of the door of the cabinet, because at the Palais Royal lies all the gold, that is to say, all the power of him who desires to reign.' Louis turned sharply around. The voice which had pronounced these words was that of Anne of Austria. The king started and advanced toward her. "'I hope,' said he, "'your majesty has paid no attention to the vain declamations which the solitude and disgust familiar to kings suggest to the happiest dispositions.' "'I only paid attention to one thing, my son, and that was that you were complaining.' "'Who?' I not at all, said Louis the Fourteenth. No, in truth, you err, madame. What were you doing then? I thought I was under the ferrule of my professor and developing a subject of amplification. My son, replied Anne of Austria, shaking her head, you are wrong not to trust my word. You are wrong not to grant me your confidence. A day will come, and perhaps quickly, wherein you will have occasion to remember that axiom. Gold is universal power, and they alone are kings who are all-powerful. Your intention, continued the king, was not, however, to cast blame upon the rich men of this age, was it? No, said the queen warmly. No, sire. "'They who are rich in this age under your reign "'are rich because you have been willing they should be so, "'and I entertain against them neither malice nor envy. "'They have, without doubt, "'served your majesty sufficiently well "'for your majesty to have permitted them to reward themselves. "'That is what I mean to say by the words for which you approach me.' "'God forbid, madame, "'that I should ever reproach my mother with anything.' "'Besides,' continued Anne of Austria, the Lord never gives the goods of this world but for a season; the Lord, as correctives to honor and riches, the Lord has placed sufferings, sickness, and death, and no one," added she, with a melancholy smile, which proved she made the application of the funeral precept to herself, "no man can take his wealth or greatness with him to the grave; it results, therefore, that the young gather the abundant harvest prepared for them by the old!" Louis listened with increased attention to the words which Anne of Austria, no doubt, pronounced with a view to console him. "Madame," said he, looking earnestly at his mother, "one would almost say, in truth, that you had something else to announce to me!" "I have absolutely nothing, my son, only you cannot have failed to remark; "'That is eminence the cardinal is very ill.' Louis looked at his mother, expecting some emotion in her voice, some sorrow in her countenance. The face of Anne of Austria appeared a little changed, but that was from sufferings of quite a personal character. Perhaps the alteration was caused by the cancer which had begun to consume her breast. "'Yes, madame,' said the king. "'Yes. Monsieur de Mazarin is very ill.' "'And it would be a great loss to the kingdom if God were to summon his eminence away. "'Is not that your opinion as well as mine, my son?' said the Queen. "'Yes, madame, yes, certainly. "'It would be a great loss for the kingdom,' said Louis, colouring. "'But the peril does not seem to me to be so great. "'Besides, the cardinal is still young.' The king had scarcely ceased speaking when an usher lifted a tapestry and stood with a paper in his hand, waiting for the king to speak to him. "'What have you there?' asked the king. "'A message from Monsieur de Mazarin,' replied the usher. "'Give it to me,' said the king, and he took the paper, but at the moment he was about to open it there was a great noise in the gallery, the antechamber and the court.' (sighs) ah said louis the fourteenth who doubtless knew the meaning of that triple noise how can i say there was but one king in france i was mistaken there are two as he spoke or thought thus the door opened and the superintendent of the finances fouquet appeared before his nominal master it was he who made the noise in the antechamber it was his horses that made the noise in the courtyard in addition to all this a loud murmur was heard along his passage which did not die away till some time after he had passed it was this murmur which louis the fourteenth regretted so deeply not hearing as he passed and dying away behind him he is not precisely a king as you fancy said anne of austria to her son he is only a man who is much too rich that is all while saying these words a bitter feeling gave to these words of the queen a most hateful expression whereas the brow of the king calm and self-possessed on the contrary was without the slightest wrinkle he nodded therefore familiarly to fouquet whilst he continued to unfold the paper given to him by the usher fouquet perceived this movement and with a politeness at once easy and respectful advanced toward the queen so as not to disturb the king Louis had opened the paper, and yet he did not read it. He listened to Fouquet, paying the most charming compliments to the Queen upon her hand and arm. Anne of Austria's frown relaxed a little. She even almost smiled. Fouquet perceived that the King, instead of reading, was looking at him. He turned half round, therefore, and, while continuing his conversation with the Queen, faced the King. "'You know, Monsieur Fouquet,' said Louis, how ill monsieur mazarin is yes sire i know that said fouquet in fact he is very ill i was at my country house of vaux when the news reached me and the affair seemed so pressing that i left at once you left vaux this evening monsieur an hour and a half ago yes your majesty said fouquet consulting a watch richly ornamented with diamonds An hour and a half?' said the king, still able to restrain his anger, but not to conceal his astonishment. "'I understand you, sire. Your majesty doubts my words, and you have reason to do so. But I have really come in that time, though it is wonderful. I received from England three pairs of uh, very fast horses, as I had been assured. They were placed at distances of four leagues apart, and I tried them this evening.' They really brought me from Vaux to the Louvre in an hour and a half. So, your majesty sees, I have not been cheated." The Queen Mother smiled with something like secret envy, but Fouquet caught her thought. "'Thus, madame,' he promptly said, "'such horses are made for kings, not for subjects, for kings ought never to yield to any one in anything.' The King looked up. "'And yet,' interrupted Anne of Austria, you are not a king that I know of, M. Fouquet.' "'Truly not, madame. Therefore the horses only await the orders of his majesty to enter the royal stables. And if I allowed myself to try them, it was only for fear of offering the king anything that was not positively wonderful.' The king became quite red. "'You know, Monsieur Fouquet,' said the queen, "'that—' At the court of France, it is not the custom for a subject to offer anything to his king. Louis started. I hoped, madame, said Fouquet, much agitated, that my love for his majesty, my incessant desire to please him, would serve to compensate the want of etiquette. It was not so much a present that I permitted myself to offer as the tribute I paid. Thank you, Monsieur Fouquet said the king politely. "'And I am gratified by your intention, for I love good horses. But you know I am not very rich. You, who are my superintendent of finances, know it better than anyone else. I am not able, then, however willing I may be, to purchase such a valuable set of horses.' Fouquet darted a haughty glance at the queen mother, who appeared to triumph at the false position in which the minister had placed himself, and replied, luxury is the virtue of kings sire it is luxury which makes them resemble god it is by luxury they are more than other men with luxury a king nourishes his subjects and honors them under the mild heat of this luxury of kings springs the luxury of individuals a source of riches for the people his majesty by accepting the gift of these six incomparable horses would stimulate the pride of his own breeders of limousin and normandy and these emulation would have been beneficial to all but the king is silent and consequently i am condemned during this speech louis was unconsciously folding and unfolding mazarin's paper upon which he had not cast his eyes at length he glanced upon it and uttered a faint cry at reading the first line what is the matter my son asked the queen anxiously in going toward the king. "'From the cardinal?' replied the king, continuing to read. "'Yes, yes, it is really from him.' "'Is he worse, then?' "'Read,' said the king, passing the parchment to his mother, as if he had thought that nothing less than reading would convince Anne of Austria of a thing so astonishing as was conveyed in that paper." Anne of Austria read in turn, and as she read, her eyes sparkled with a joy all the greater from her useless endeavor to hide it, which attracted the attention of Fouquet. "'Oh, a regularly drawn-up deed of gift,' said she. "'A gift,' repeated Fouquet. "'Yes,' said the king, replying pointedly to the superintendent of finances. "'Yes, at the point of death.' Monsieur le Cardinal makes me a donation of all his wealth. Forty millions cried the Queen. Oh, my son, this is very noble on the part of his eminence, and will silence all malicious rumours. Forty millions scraped together slowly, coming back all in one heap to the treasury. It is the act of a faithful subject and a good Christian. And having once more cast her eyes over the act, she restored it to Louis the Fourteenth, whom the announcement of the sum greatly agitated. Fouquet had taken some steps backwards and remained silent. The king looked at him and held the paper out to him in turn. The superintendent only bestowed a haughty look of a second upon it, then bowing. "'Yes, sire,' said he. "'A donation, I see.' "'You must reply to it, my son,' said Anne of Austria you must reply to it and immediately but how madame by a visit to the cardinal why it is but an hour since i left his eminence said the king right then sire right said the young king with evident repugnance well replied anne of austria it seems to me my son that a man who has just made such a present as a good right to expect to be thanked for it with some degree of promptitude then turning toward fouquet is not that likewise your opinion monsieur that the present is worth the trouble yes madame said fouquet with a lofty air that did not escape the king accept it then and thank him insisted anne of austria What says Monsieur Fouquet? asked Louis the fourteenth. Does your majesty wish to know my opinion? Yes. Thank him, sire. Ah! said the queen, but do not accept, continued Fouquet. And why not? asked the queen. You have yourself said why, madame, replied Fouquet because kings cannot and ought not to receive presents from their subjects." The king remained silent between these two contrary opinions. "'But forty millions,' said Anne of Austria in the same tone as that in which, at a later period, poor Marie Antoinette replied, "'You will tell me as much.' "'I know,' said Fouquet, laughing forty millions makes a good round sum such a sum as could almost tempt a royal conscience but monsieur said anne of austria instead of persuading the king not to receive this present recall to his majesty's mind you whose duty it is that these forty millions are a fortune to him it is precisely madame "'because these forty millions would be a fortune that I say to the king. "'Sire, if it be not decent for a king to accept from a subject six horses, "'worth twenty thousand livres, "'it would be disgraceful for him to owe a fortune to another subject, "'more or less scrupulous in the choice of the materials "'which contributed to the building up of that fortune.' "'It ill becomes you, monsieur, to give your king a lesson,' said Anne of Austria. "'Better procure for him forty millions "'to replace those you make him lose.' "'The king shall have them whenever he wishes,' "'said the superintendent of finances, bowing. "'Yes, by oppressing the people,' said the queen. "'And were they not oppressed, madame?' "'replied Fouquet, "'when they were made to sweat the forty millions "'given by this deed. "'Furthermore,' His majesty has asked my opinion, and I have given it. If his majesty asks my concurrence, it will be the same. Nonsense! Accept, my son, accept, said Anne of Austria. You are above reports and interpretations. Refuse, sire, said Fouquet. As long as a king lives, he has no other measure but his conscience no other judge than his own desires but when dead he has posterity which applauds or accuses thank you mother replied louis bowing respectfully to the queen thank you monsieur fouquet said he dismissing the superintendent civilly do you accept asked anne of austria once more "'I shall consider of it,' replied he, looking at Fouquet. End of chapter forty-seven Recording by John Van Stan Savannah, Georgia Chapter forty-eight of the D'Artagnan Romances Volume three, part one, by Alexandre Dumas Translated by William Robson This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Agony the day that the deed of gift had been sent to the king, the cardinal caused himself to be transported to Vincennes. The king and the court followed him thither. The last flashes of this torch still cast splendour enough around to absorb all other lights in its rays. Besides, as it has been seen, the faithful satellite of his minister, young Louis the Fourteenth, marched to the last minute in accordance with his gravitation. The disease, as Guinaud had predicted, had become worse. It was no longer an attack of gout, it was an attack of death. Then there was another thing which made that agony more agonizing still, and that was the agitation brought into his mind by the donation he had sent to the king, and which, according to Colbert, the king ought to send back unaccepted to the cardinal. The cardinal had, as we have said, great faith in the predictions of his secretary, but the sum was a large one and whatever might be the genius of colbert from time to time the cardinal thought to himself that the theatin also might possibly have been mistaken and that there was at least as much chance of his not being damned as there was of louis the fourteenth sending back his millions besides the longer the donation was in coming back the more mazarin thought that forty millions were worth a little risk particularly of so hypothetical a thing as the soul mazarin In his character of cardinal and prime minister was almost an atheist and quite a materialist every time that the door opened he turned sharply round towards that door expecting to see the return of his unfortunate donation then deceived in his hope he fell back again with a sigh and found his pains so much the greater for having forgotten them for an instant anne of austria had also followed the cardinal her heart though age had made it selfish could not help evincing towards a dying man a sorrow which she owed him as a wife according to some and as a sovereign according to others she had in some sort put on a mourning countenance beforehand and all the court wore it as she did louis in order not to show on his face what was passing at the bottom of his heart persisted in remaining in his own apartments where his nurse alone kept him company the more he saw the approach of the time when all constraint would be at an end the more humble and patient he was falling back upon himself as all strong men do when they form great designs in order to gain more spring at the decisive moment extreme unction had been administered to the cardinal who faithful to his habits of dissimulation struggled against appearances and even against reality receiving company in his bed as if he only suffered from a temporary complaint guinaud on his part preserved profound secrecy wearied with visits and questions he answered nothing but his eminence is still full of youth and strength but god wills that which he wills and when he has decided that man is to be laid low he will be laid low these words which he scattered with a sort of discretion reserve and preference were commented upon earnestly by two persons the king and the cardinal mazarin notwithstanding the prophecy of Gnod, still lured himself with a hope or rather played his part so well that the most cunning when saying that he lured himself proved that they were his dupes louis absent from the cardinal for two days louis with his eyes fixed upon that same donation which so constantly preoccupied the cardinal louis did not exactly know how to make out mazarin's conduct the son of louis the thirteenth following the paternal traditions had up to that time been so little of a king that whilst ardently desiring royalty he desired it with that terror which always accompanies the unknown thus having formed his resolution which besides he communicated to nobody he determined to have an interview with mazarin it was anne of austria who constant in her attendance upon the cardinal first heard this proposition of the king's and transmitted it to the dying man whom it greatly agitated for what purpose could Louis wish for an interview? Was it to return the deed, as Colbert had said he would? Was it to keep it, after thanking him, as Mazarin thought he would? Nevertheless, as the dying man felt that the uncertainty increased his torments, he did not hesitate an instant. "'His majesty will be welcome—yes, very welcome,' cried he, making a sign to Colbert, who was seated at the foot of the bed, and which the latter understood perfectly. "'Madame,' continued Mazarin, "'will your majesty be good enough to assure the king yourself of the truth of what I have just said?' Anne of Austria rose. She herself was anxious to have the question of the forty millions settled, the question which seemed to lie heavy on the mind of everyone. Anne of Austria went out. Mazarin made a great effort in raising himself up toward Colbert. "'Well, Colbert,' said he, two days have passed away two mortal days and you see nothing has been returned from yonder patience my lord said colbert are you mad you wretch you advise me to have patience oh in sad truth colbert you are laughing at me i am dying and you call out to me to wait my lord said colbert with his habitual coolness it is impossible that things should not come out as i have said his majesty is coming to see you and no doubt he brings back the deed himself do you think so well i on the contrary am sure that his majesty is coming to thank me at this moment anne of austria returned on her way to the apartments of her son she had met with a new empiric this was a powder which was said to have power to save the cardinal and she brought a portion of this powder with her but this was not what mazarin expected therefore he would not even look at it declaring that life was not worth the pains that were taken to preserve it but whilst professing this philosophical axiom his long confined secret escaped him at last that madame said he that is not the interesting part of my situation i made two days ago a little donation to the king up to this time from delicacy no doubt his majesty has not condescended to say anything about it but the time for explanation is come and i implore your majesty to tell me if the king has made up his mind on that matter anne of austria was about to reply when mazarin stopped her the truth madame said he in the name of heaven the truth do not flatter a dying man with a hope that may prove vain there he stopped a look from colbert telling him that he was on the wrong tack i know said anne of austria taking the cardinal's hand i know that you have generously made not a little donation as you modestly call it but a magnificent gift i know how painful it would be to you if the king mazarin listened dying as he was as ten living men could not have listened if the king replied he if the king continued anne of austria should not freely accept what you offer so nobly mazarin allowed himself to sink back upon his pillow like pantaloon that is to say with all the despair of a man who bows before the tempest But he still preserved sufficient strength and presence of mind to cast upon Colbert one of those looks which are well worth ten sonnets, which is to say ten long poems. "'Should you not,' added the queen, "'have considered the refusal of the king as a sort of insult?' Mazarin rolled his head upon his pillow without articulating a syllable. The queen was deceived, or feigned to be deceived, by this demonstration therefore resumed she i have circumvented him with good counsels and as certain minds jealous no doubt of the glory you are about to acquire by this generosity have endeavored to prove to the king that he ought not to accept this donation i have struggled in your favor and so well have i struggled that you will not have i hope that distress to undergo ah murmured mazarin with languishing eyes. "'Ah! That is a service I shall never forget. For a single minute of the few hours I still have to live.' "'I must admit,' continued the queen, "'that it was not without trouble I rendered it to your eminence.' "'Ah! Beste, I believe that. Oh! Oh!' "'Good God! What is the matter?' "'I am burning.' "'Do you suffer much?' "'As much as one of the damned.' Colbert would have liked to sink through the floor. "'So then,' resumed Mazarin, "'your majesty thinks that the king,' he stopped several seconds, "'that the king is coming here to offer me some small thanks.' "'I think so,' said the queen mazarin annihilated colbert with his last look at that moment the ushers announced that the king was in the antechambers which were filled with people this announcement produced a stir of which colbert took advantage to escape by the door of the roya anne of austria rose and awaited her son standing louis the fourteenth appeared at the threshold of the door with his eyes fixed upon the dying man who did not even think it worth while to notice that majesty from whom he thought he had nothing more to expect an usher placed an armchair close to the bed louis bowed to his mother then to the cardinal and sat down the queen took a seat in her turn then as the king looked behind him the usher understood that look and made a sign to the courtiers who filled up the doorway to go out which they instantly did silence fell upon the chamber with the velvet curtains The king, still very young and very timid in the presence of him who had been his master from his birth, still respected him much, particularly now in the supreme majesty of death. He did not dare, therefore, to begin the conversation, feeling that every word must have its weight not only upon things of this world, but of the next. As to the cardinal, at that moment he had but one thought, his donation— it was not physical pain which gave him that air of despondency and that lugubrious look. It was the expectation of the thanks that were about to issue from the king's mouth and cut off all hope of restitution. Mazarin was the first to break the silence. "'Is your majesty come to make any stay at Vincennes?' said he. Louis made an affirmative sign with his head. That is a gracious favor, continued Mazarin, granted to a dying man, and which will render death less painful to him. I hope, replied the king, I am come to visit, not a dying man, but a sick man, susceptible of cure. Mazarin replied by a movement of the head. Your majesty is very kind, but i know more than you on that subject the last visit sire said he the last visit if it were so monsieur the cardinal said louis i would come a last time to ask the counsels of a guide to whom i owe everything anne of austria was a woman she could not restrain her tears louis showed himself much affected and mazarin still more than his two guests but from very different motives here the silence returned the queen wiped her eyes and the king resumed his firmness i was saying continued the king that i owed much to your eminence the eyes of the cardinal devoured the king for he felt the great moment had come and continued louis the principal object of my visit was to offer you very sincere thanks for the last evidence of friendship you have kindly sent me the cheeks of the cardinal became sunken his lips partially opened and the most lamentable sigh he had ever uttered was about to issue from his chest sire said he i shall have despoiled my poor family i shall have ruined all who belong to me which may be imputed to me as an error "'But, at least, it shall not be said of me "'that I have refused to sacrifice everything to my king.' Anne of Austria's tears flowed afresh. "'My dear Monsieur Mazarin,' said the king, "'in a more serious tone than might have been expected from his youth, "'you have misunderstood me, apparently.' Mazarin raised himself upon his elbow i have no purpose to despoil your dear family nor to ruin your servants oh no that must never be humph thought mazarin he is going to restore me some scraps and let us get the largest piece we can the king is going to be foolishly affected and play the generous thought the queen he must not be allowed to impoverish himself Such an opportunity for getting a fortune will never occur again. "'Sire,' said the cardinal aloud, "'my family is very numerous, "'and my nieces will be destitute when I am gone.' "'Oh,' interrupted the queen eagerly, "'have no uneasiness with respect to your family, dear Monsieur Mazarin. "'We have no friends dearer than your friends. "'Your nieces shall be my children.' the sisters of his majesty and if a favor be distributed in france it shall be to those you love smoke thought mazarin who knew better than any one the faith that can be put in the promises of kings louis read the dying man's thought in his face be comforted my dear monsieur mazarin said he with a half smile sad beneath its irony the mademoiselle de mancini will lose in losing you their most precious good, but they shall none the less be the richest heiresses of france and Since you have been kind enough to give me their dowry, the cardinal was panting. I restore it to them. continued Louis, drawing from his breast and holding toward the cardinal's bed the parchment which contained the donation that during two days had kept alive such tempests in the mind of Mazarin. What did I tell you, my lord? murmured in the alcove a voice which passed away like a breath your majesty returns my donation cried mazarin so disturbed by joy as to forget his character of a benefactor your majesty rejects the forty millions cried anne of austria so stupefied as to forget her character of an afflicted wife or queen yes my lord cardinal yes madame replied Louis the fourteenth, tearing the parchment which Mazarin had not yet ventured to clutch, Yes, I annihilate this deed which despoiled a whole family. The wealth acquired by his eminence in my service is his own wealth and not mine. But, sire, does your majesty reflect, said Anne of Austria, that you have not ten thousand crowns in your coffers? Madame, I have just performed my first royal action and i hope it will worthily inaugurate my reign ah sire you are right cried mazarin that is truly great that is truly generous which you have just done and he looked one after the other at the pieces of the act spread over his bed to assure himself that it was the original and not a copy that had been torn At length his eyes fell upon the fragment which bore his signature, and, recognizing it, he sunk back on his bolster in a swoon. Anne of Austria, without strength to conceal her regret, raised her hands and eyes toward heaven. "'Oh, sire!' cried Mazarin. "'May you be blessed! My God! May you be beloved by all my family! Per Bacco!' if ever any of those belonging to me should cause your displeasure sire only frown and i will rise from my tomb this pantalonade did not produce all the effect mazarin had counted upon louis had already passed to considerations of a higher nature and as to anne of austria unable to bear without abandoning herself to the anger she felt burning within her the magnanimity of her son and the hypocrisy of the cardinal she arose and left the chamber, heedless of thus betraying the extent of her grief. Mazarin saw all this, and fearing that Louis the fourteenth might repent his decision, in order to draw attention another way he began to cry out, as, at a later period, Skepin was to cry out in that sublime piece of pleasantry with which the morose and grumbling Boileau dared to reproach Moliere. His cries, however, by degrees became fainter, and when anne of austria left the apartment they ceased altogether monsieur le cardinal said the king have you any recommendations to make me sire replied mazarin you are already wisdom itself prudence personified and your generosity i shall not venture to speak that which you have just done exceeds all that the most generous men of antiquity or of modern times, have ever done. The king received this praise coldly. "'So you confine yourself,' said he, "'to your thanks, and your experience much more extensive than my wisdom, my prudence or my generosity, does not furnish you with a single piece of friendly advice to guide my future.' Mazarin reflected for a moment you have just done much for me sire said he and that is for my family say no more about that said the king well continued mazarin i shall give you something in exchange for these forty millions you have refused so royally louis the fourteenth indicated by a movement that these flatteries were displeasing to him i shall give you a piece of advice continued mazarin yes a piece of advice advice more precious than the 40 millions my lord cardinal interrupted louis sire listen to this advice i am listening come nearer sire for i am weak nearer sire nearer the king bent over the dying man sire said mazarin in so low a tone that the breath of his words arrived only like a recommendation from the tomb in the attentive ears of the king sire never have a prime minister louis drew back astonished the advice was a confession a treasure in fact was that sincere confession of mazarin the legacy of the cardinal to the young king was composed of six words only but those six words as mazarin had said were worth forty millions louis remained for an instant bewildered as for mazarin he appeared only to have said something quite natural a little scratching was heard along the curtains of the alcove mazarin understood yes yes cried he warmly yes sire i recommend to you a wise man an honest man and a clever man tell me his name my lord his name is yet almost unknown sire it is monsieur gobert my attendant. oh try him added mazarin in an earnest voice all that he has predicted has come to pass he has a safe glance he is never mistaken either in things or in men which is more surprising still sire i owe you much but i think i acquit myself of all toward you in giving you monsieur colbert so be it said louis faintly for as mazarin had said the name of colbert was quite unknown to him and he thought the enthusiasm of the cardinal partook of the delirium of a dying man the cardinal sank back on his pillows for the present adieu sire adieu murmured mazarin i am tired and i have yet a rough journey to take before i present myself to my new master adieu sire the young king felt the tears rise to his eyes he bent over the dying man already half a corpse and then hastily retired end of chapter forty eight recording by john van stan savannah georgia Chapter 49 of the D'Artagnan Romances volume 3 part 1 by Alexandre Dumas translated by William Robson this LibriVox recording is in the public domain the first appearance of colbert the whole night was passed in anguish common to the dying man and to the king the dying man expected his deliverance the king awaited his liberty louis did not go to bed An hour after leaving the chamber of the cardinal he learned that the dying man, recovering a little strength, had insisted upon being dressed, adorned and painted, and seeing the ambassadors. Like Augustus he no doubt considered the world a great stage and was desirous of playing out the last act of the comedy. Anne of Austria reappeared no more in the cardinal's apartments. She had nothing more to do there. Propriety was the pretext for her absence. On his part the cardinal did not ask for her. The advice the queen had given her son rankled in his heart. Towards midnight, while still painted, Mazarin's mortal agony came on. He had revised his will, and as this will was the exact expression of his wishes, and as he feared that some interested influence might take advantage of his weakness to make him change something in it, he had given orders to Colbert, who walked up and down the corridor which led to the cardinal's bedchamber like the most vigilant of sentinels. The king shut up in his own apartment, dispatched his nurse every hour to Mazarin's chamber, with orders to bring him back the exact bulletin of the cardinal's state. After having heard that Mazarin was dressed, painted, and had seen the ambassadors, Louis heard that the prayers for the dying were being read for the cardinal. At one o'clock in the morning, Ginnard had administered the last remedy. This was a relic of the old customs of that fencing time, which was about to disappear to give place to another time, to believe that death could be kept off by some good secret thrust. Mazarin, after having taken the remedy, respired freely for nearly ten minutes. He immediately gave orders that the news should be spread everywhere of a fortunate crisis. The king, on learning this, felt as if a cold sweat were passing over his brow. He had had a glimpse of the light of liberty. Slavery appeared to him more dark and less acceptable than ever but the bulletin which followed entirely changed the face of things. Mazarin could no longer breathe at all, and could scarcely follow the prayers which the cure of Saint-Nicolas-de-Champs recited near him. The king resumed his agitated walk about his chamber, and consulted as he walked several papers drawn from a casket of which he alone had the key. A third time the nurse returned, Monsieur de Mazarin had just uttered a joke, and had ordered his Flora by Titian to be revarnished. At length, towards two o'clock in the morning, the king could no longer resist his weariness. He had not slept for twenty-four hours. Sleep, so powerful at his age, overcame him for about an hour. But he did not go to bed for that hour. He slept in a fauteuil. About four o'clock his nurse awoke him by entering the room. "'Well?' asked the king. "'Well, my dear sire,' said the nurse, clasping her hands with an air of commiseration, well he is dead the king arose at a bound as if a steel spring had been applied to his legs dead cried he alas yes is it quite certain yes official yes has the news been made public not yet who told you, then, that the cardinal was dead? Monsieur Colbert. Monsieur Colbert? Yes. And was he sure of what he said? He came out of the chamber, and held a glass for some minutes before the cardinal's lips. Ah! Huh, said the king, and what has become of Monsieur Colbert? He has just left his eminence-chamber.' "'Where is he?' "'He followed me.' "'So that he is—' "'Sire, waiting at your door, till it shall be your good pleasure to receive him.' Louis ran to the door, opened it himself, and perceived Colbert standing, waiting in the passage. The king started at the sight of this statue all clothed in black. Colbert, bowing with profound respect, advanced two steps towards his majesty. Louis re-entered his chamber, making Colbert a sign to follow. Colbert entered. Louis dismissed the nurse, who closed the door as she went out. Colbert remained modestly standing near that door. "'What do you come to announce to me, monsieur?' said Louis, very much troubled at being thus surprised in his private thoughts, which he could not completely conceal. "'That, monsieur, le cardinal has just expired, sire, and that I bring your majesty his last adieu.' The king remained pensive for a minute, and during that minute he looked attentively at Colbert. It was evident that the cardinal's last words were in his mind. "'Are you, then, monsieur Colbert?' asked he. Yes, sire? His faithful servant, as his eminence himself told me. Yes, sire? The depository of many of his secrets? All of them. The friends and servants of his eminence will be dear to me, monsieur, and I shall take care that you are well placed in my employment. Colbert bowed you are a financier monsieur i believe yes sire and did monsieur le cardinal employ you in his stewardship i had that honor sire you never did anything personally for my household i believe pardon me sire it was i who had the honor of giving monsieur le cardinal the idea of an economy which puts three hundred thousand francs a year into your majesty's coffers what economy was that monsieur asked louis the fourteenth your majesty knows that the hundred swiss have silver lace on each side of their ribbons doubtless well sire it was i who proposed that imitation silver lace should be placed upon these ribbons it could not be detected and a hundred thousand crowns serve to feed a regiment during six months, and is the price of ten thousand good muskets, or the value of a vessel of ten guns, ready for sea!" "That is true," said Louis the fourteenth., considering more attentively, "and, ma foi, that was a well-placed economy, besides, it was ridiculous for soldiers to wear the same lace as noblemen. I am happy to be approved of by your majesty. Is that the only appointment you held about the cardinal? asked the king. It was I who was appointed to examine the accounts of the superintendent, sire. Ah! said Louis, who was about to dismiss Colbert, but whom that word stopped. Ah! It was you whom his eminence had charged to control, Monsieur Fouquet, was it? "'And the result of the examination?' "'Is that there is a deficit, sire. "'But if your majesty will permit me.' "'Speak, monsieur Colbert.' "'I ought to give your majesty some explanations.' "'Not at all, monsieur. "'It is you who have controlled these accounts. "'Give me the result.' "'That is very easily done, sire. "'Emptiness everywhere. "'Money nowhere.' beware monsieur you are roughly attacking the administration of monsieur fouquet who nevertheless i have heard say is an able man colbert colored and then became pale for he felt that from that minute he entered upon a struggle with a man whose power almost equaled the sway of him who had just died yes sire a very able man repeated colbert bowing But. If Monsieur Fouquet is an able man, and in spite of that ability, if money be wanting, whose fault is it?" "I do not accuse, sire, I verify!" "That is well, make out your accounts, and present them to me, there is a deficit, you say, a deficit may be temporary, credit returns, and funds are restored?" "No, sire. Upon this year, perhaps. I understand that, but upon next year? Next year is eaten as bare as the current year. But the year after, then? Will be just like next year. What do you tell me, Monsieur Colbert? I say there are four years engaged beforehand. They must have a loan, then they must have three sire i will create offices to make them resign and the salary of the post shall be paid into the treasury impossible sire for there have already been creations upon creations of offices the provisions of which are given in blank so that the purchasers enjoy them without filling them that is why your majesty cannot make them resign further upon each agreement m fouquet has made an abatement of a third so that the people have been plundered without your majesty profiting by it let your majesty set down clearly your thought and tell me what you wish me to explain you are right clearness is what you wish is it not yes sire clearness God is God above all things, because He made light!" "Well, for example," resumed Louis the fourteenth., "if to-day the cardinal being dead, and I being king, suppose I wanted money?" "Your majesty would not have any!" "Oh, that is strange, monsieur!" "How, my superintendent would not find me any money?" Colbert shook his large head. "'How is that?' said the king. "'Is the income of the state so much in debt that there is no longer any revenue?' "'Yes, sire.' The king started. "'Explain me that, monsieur Colbert,' added he with a frown. "'If it be so, I will get together the ordinances to obtain a discharge from the holders, a liquidation at a cheap rate.' impossible for the ordinances have been converted into bills which bills for the convenience of return and facility of transaction are divided into so many parts that the originals can no longer be recognized louis very much agitated walked about still frowning but if this is as you say monsieur colbert said he stopping all at once i shall be ruined before i begin to reign you are in fact sire said the impassable caster-up of figures well but yet monsieur the money is somewhere yes sire and even as a beginning i bring your majesty a note of funds which monsieur le cardinal mazarin was not willing to set down in his testament neither in any act whatever but which he confided to me to you yes sire with an injunction to remit it to your majesty. What? Besides the forty millions of the testament? Yes, sire. Monsieur de Mazarin had still other funds. Colbert bowed. Why, that man was a gulf, murmured the king. Monsieur de Mazarin on one side, Monsieur Fouquet on the other, more than a hundred millions perhaps between them no wonder my coffer should be empty colbert waited without stirring and is the sum you bring me worth the trouble asked the king yes sire it is a round sum amounting to how much to 13 millions of livres sire 13 millions cried louis trembling with joy do you say 13 millions monsieur colbert I said, Thirteen Millions, yes, your Majesty. Of which everybody is ignorant? Of which everybody is ignorant. Which are in your hands? In my hands, yes, sire. And which I can have? Within two hours, sire. But where are they, then? in the cellar of a house which the cardinal possessed in the city and which he was so kind as to leave me by a particular clause of his will.' "'You are acquainted with the cardinal's will, then?' "'I have a duplicate of it, signed by his hand.' "'A duplicate?' "'Yes, sire. And here it is.' Colbert drew the deed quietly from his pocket and showed it to the king. THE KING READ THE ARTICLE RELATIVE TO THE DONATION OF THE HOUSE. "'But,' said he, "'there is no question here but of the house. There is nothing said of the money.' "'Your pardon, sire. It is in my conscience.' "'And M. Mazarin has entrusted it to you?' "'Why not, sire?' "'He, a man mistrustful of everybody.' He was not so of me, sire, as your majesty may perceive." Louis fixed his eyes with admiration upon that vulgar but expressive face. "'You are an honest man, monsieur Colbert,' said the king. That is not a virtue. It is a duty,' replied Colbert coolly. "'But,' added Louis, "'does not the money belong to the family?' If this money belonged to the family, it would be disposed of in the testament, as the rest of his fortune is. If this money belonged to the family, I, who drew up the deed of donation in favor of your majesty, should have added the sum of thirteen millions to that of forty millions which was offered to you.' "'How?' exclaimed Louis Fourteenth. "'Was it you who drew up the deed of donation?' "'Yes, sire.' And yet the cardinal was attached to you,' added the king ingenuously. "'I had assured his eminence you would by no means accept the gift,' said Colbert in that same quiet manner we have described, and which, even in the common habits of life, had something solemn in it. Louis passed his hand over his brow. "'Oh, how young I am,' murmured he, "'to have the command of men.' Colbert waited the end of this monologue. He saw Louis raise his head. "'At what hour shall I send the money to your majesty?' asked he. "'Tonight. At eleven o'clock, I desire that no one may know that I possess this money.' Colbert made no more reply than if the thing had not been said to him. "'Is the amount in ingots or coined gold?' "'In coined gold, sire.' that is well where shall i send it to the louvre thank you monsieur colbert colbert bowed and retired thirteen millions exclaimed louis as soon as he was alone this must be a dream then he allowed his head to sink between his hands as if he were really asleep but at the end of a moment he arose and opening the window violently he bathed his burning brow in the keen morning air which brought to his senses the scent of the trees and the perfume of flowers. A splendid dawn was gilding the horizon, and the first rays of the sun bathed in flame the young king's brow. "'This is the dawn of my reign,' murmured Louis the Fourteenth. "'It's a presage sent by the Almighty.'" End of chapter 49 Recording by John Van Stan Savannah, Georgia Chapter 50 of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume 3, Part 1, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This, LibriVox, recording, is in the public domain. The First Day of the Royalty of Louis the Fourteenth. In the morning, the news of the death of the cardinal was spread through the castle, and thence speedily reached the city. The ministers Fouquet, Lyon, and Letellier entered La Salle de Science to hold a council. The king sent for them immediately. Messieurs, said he, "'as long as Monsieur le Cardinal lived I allowed him to govern my affairs. But now I mean to govern them myself. You will give me your advice when I ask it. You may go.' The ministers looked at each other with surprise. If they concealed a smile it was with a great effort for they knew that the prince, brought up in absolute ignorance of business, by this took upon himself a burden much too heavy for his strength. Fouquet took leave of his colleagues upon the stairs, saying, Messieurs, there will be so much less labor for us. And he climbed gaily into his carriage. The others, a little uneasy at the turn things had taken, went back to Paris together. Towards ten o'clock the king repaired to the apartment of his mother with whom he had a long and private conversation after dinner he got into his carriage and went straight to the louvre there he received much company and took a degree of pleasure in remarking the hesitation of each and the curiosity of all towards evening he ordered the doors of the louvre to be closed with the exception of one only which opened on the quay he placed on duty at this point two hundred swiss who did not speak a word of french with orders to admit all who carried packages but no others, and by no means to allow any one to go out. At eleven o'clock precisely he heard the rolling of a heavy carriage under the arch, then of another, then of a third, after which the gate grated upon its hinges to be closed. Soon after somebody scratched with his nail at the door of the cabinet. The king opened it himself and beheld Colbert, whose first word was this, the money is in your majesty's cellar the king then descended and went himself to see the barrels of specie in gold and silver which under the direction of colbert four men had just rolled into a cellar of which the king had given colbert the key in the morning this review completed louis returned to his apartments followed by colbert who had not apparently warmed with one ray of personal satisfaction monsieur said the king What do you wish that I should give you, as a recompense for this devotedness and probity?' "'Absolutely nothing, sire.' "'How nothing? Not even an opportunity of serving me?' "'If your majesty were not to furnish me with that opportunity, I should not the less serve you. It is impossible for me not to be the best servant of the king.' "'You shall be intendant of the finances, monsieur Colbert.' "'But there is already a superintendent, sire.' "'I know that.' "'Sire, the superintendent of the finances is the most powerful man in the kingdom.' "'Huh?' cried Louis, colouring. "'Do you think so?' "'He will crush me in a week, sire.' Your Majesty gives me a contrôlé for which strength is indispensable. An intendant under a superintendent, that is, inferiority. You want support? You do not reckon upon me? I had the honor of telling Your Majesty that during the lifetime of Monsieur de Mazarin, Monsieur Fouquet was the second man in the kingdom. Now Monsieur de Mazarin is dead. Monsieur Fouquet... Is become the first monsieur I agree to what you told me of all things up to today but tomorrow please to remember I shall no longer suffer it then I shall be of no use to your majesty you are already since you fear to compromise yourself in serving me I only fear to be placed so that I cannot serve your majesty what do you wish, then? I wish your majesty to allow me assistance in the labours of the office of intendant. The post would lose its value. It would gain in security. Choose your colleagues. Messieurs Breteuil, Marine, Harvard. Tomorrow the ordinance shall appear. Sire, I thank you is that all you ask no sire one more thing what is that allow me to compose a chamber of justice what would this chamber of justice do try the farmers general and contractors who during ten years have been robbing the state well but what would you do with them hang two or three, and that would make the rest disgorge." "'I cannot commence my reign with executions, monsieur Colbert.' "'On the contrary, sire, you had better, in order not to have to end with them.' The king made no reply. "'Does your majesty consent?' said Colbert. "'I will reflect upon it, monsieur.' it will be too late when reflection may be made why because you have to deal with people stronger than ourselves if they are warned compose that chamber of justice monsieur i will sire is that all no sire there is still another important affair What rights does your majesty attach to this office of intendant? Well, I do not know. The customary ones. Sire, I desire that this office be invested with the right of reading the correspondence with England. Impossible, monsieur, for that correspondence is kept from the council. Monsieur le cardinal himself carried it on. I thought your majesty had this morning declared that there should be no longer a council. Yes, I said so. Let your majesty then have the goodness to read all the letters yourself, particularly those from England. I hold strongly to this article. Monsieur, you shall have that correspondence, and render me an account of it. Now, sire, "'What shall I do with respect to the finances?' "'Everything Monsieur Fouquet has not done.' "'That is all I ask of your majesty. "'Thanks, sire. "'I depart in peace.' "'And at these words he took his leave. "'Louis watched his departure. "'Colbert was not yet a hundred paces from the Louvre "'when the king received a courier from England. "'After having looked at and examined the envelope, "'the king broke the seal precipitately.' and found a letter from Charles II. The following is what the English prince wrote to his royal brother. Your Majesty must be rendered very uneasy by the illness of Monsieur le Cardinal Mazarin, but the excess of danger can only prove of service to you. The Cardinal is given over by his physician. I thank you for the gracious reply you have made to my communication touching the Princess Henrietta, my sister, and in a week... The princess and her court will set out for Paris. It is gratifying to me to acknowledge the fraternal friendship you have evinced toward me, and to call you, more justly than ever, my brother. It is gratifying to me, above everything, to prove to your majesty how much I am interested in all that may please you. You are having Belle Isle-en-Mer secretly fortified. That is wrong. We shall never be at war against each other. The measure does not make me uneasy. It makes me sad. You are spending useless millions. Tell your ministers so, and rest assured that I am well informed. Render me the same service, my brother, if occasion offers.' The king rang his bell violently, and his valet de chambre appeared. "'Monsieur Colbert has just gone. He cannot be far off. Let him be called back,' exclaimed he the valet was about to execute the order when the king stopped him no said he no i see the whole scheme of that man belle-isle belongs to Monsieur fouquet belle-isle is being fortified that is a conspiracy on the part of Monsieur fouquet the discovery of that conspiracy is a ruin of the superintendent and that discovery is the result of the correspondence with england This is why Colbert wished to have that correspondence. But I cannot place all my dependence upon that man. He has a good head, but I must have an arm. Louis, all at once, uttered a joyful cry. I had, said he, a lieutenant of musketeers. Yes, sire, monsieur d'Artagnan. He quitted the service for a time. Yes, sire. Let him be found, and be here to-morrow the first thing in the morning. The valet de chambre bowed and went out. Thirteen millions in my cellar, said the king, Colbert carrying my purse, and d'Artagnan, my sword. I am king. End of chapter fifty Recording by John Vanstan, Savannah, Georgia.